Blog Talk Radio. Enter the zone. The Prophecy Zone. Your end time watchman. Bringing you light in a dark world. Where truth is rivaled with a lie. And the matrix is normal life. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars. And upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. You are now in the zone. So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days. So you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone. The prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy. So you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Hi, welcome everybody. This is Brenda Johnson on the Prophecy Zone and Blog Talk Radio. As the day approaches, I want to thank you for joining me today. Oh, wow. When I look at my screen, I see so much to share with you today. Surrounding me, I have books, about five of them, and uh, that I have been gleaning information, plus Internet and plus others. I just want to... Uh, be able to share a, a lot of what I have with you today. Yeah, this is going to be great. Uh, last week we did a uh, started a series on um, Israel, and we started out with talking about the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I was going to uh, do Islam, uh, Israel versus Islam in the Temple Mount, and I was going to do it all in one show, but I found that it took the entire show to actually talk about Israel, the history of the Temple Mount, and how it is, it is specific for Israel, <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, what kind of relationship Israel has with Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. So I spent a whole entire show on that, and um, today I am going to focus on the Temple Mount and Islam. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm having a little bit of trouble with my voice today, so I am going to see how long I can go. So if you hear pause, it's because I need to take a, a, a brief second.
Okay. I am so sorry for that pause. I have no clue what that was all about. I don't know. I couldn't find anywhere that there was some kind of sound uh, coming off the computer like a uh, uh, a movie trailer, and I could not find anywhere where it was coming from. I had a lot of windows open, so I don't know where that was coming from. So I am so sorry for the pause because it was not a very decent kind of uh of a trailer and it was coming through my speaker so I I apologize for that so I believe that we are in the time of the Gentiles from the time of the Roman Empire uh, destruction of the temple until not only just Jerusalem but also um, <clears throat> also uh, the building of the temple and until we get the uh, until the Jewish people get the Temple Mount back, I still feel that we are in the time of the Gentiles, and I believe not just the temple being built, but the the uh, gaining back the Temple Mount is this end of the Gentiles. I know a lot of people think that uh, it is the gaining of Jerusalem or uh, the uh, nation of Israel becoming a nation. So I really am seeing more and more that it is uh, the the possession of the Temple Mount and being able to establish the temple again. Uh, Daniel 9.27 says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seventh, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering and on a wing of the temple. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, that is referring to the Antichrist. And it is is obvious that uh, the temple must be rebuilt. We're going to be talking about that uh, not next week. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the rebuilding of the temple. Matthew twenty four fifteen through 22. So when you see standing 
in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea to flee to the mountain. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. <coughs> and why do I read the? And why do I focus on these scriptures? You may not understand at first, but you'll understand as we go along in in this particular episode of this show. Now. I want to tell you something that I told you in uh, when I did uh, the series on Islam and just briefly tell you just a little snippet about what um, I've been talking about. In Islam, the Mahdi, or guided one, is how it's known, is the prophesied redeemer of Islam who will stay on earth seven, nine, or 19 years, depending on the interpretation before the coming of the day, the day of res- literally the day of resurrection or the day of standing, <clears throat> Muslims believe that the Mahdi will uh, rid the world of error. Non-Muslim, and that means non-Muslim thinking. It, they believe the Mahdi will uh, rid the world world of injustice and tyranny, alongside of Jesus, who will be coming back with the Mahdi. The concept of the Mahdi is not explicitly mentioned in the Quran, but there are many hadiths, which are the traditions and sayings of Muhammad on the Mahdi. This is where we get a lot of the teachings on the Mahdi. Now, the idea of the Mahdi has been described as important to Sufi Muslims and as powerful and, and central as powerful and a central idea for the Shia Muslims. So both Muslims and Shia, or Sufi and Shia and Sunni, all believe in the coming of the Mahdi. There are some that do not. So, But uh, the majority agreement is that there is um, agreement upon the coming or the return of the Mahdi. Uh, now, the Mahdi is the 12th Imam, Muhammad al-Mahdi, who will return from his present state of hiding. Now, um, it has gained a stronghold on the imagination of many Muslims worldwide. It is prominent today. Now, I'm not going to really go into a lot of this right yet. I'm going to see if I have time to to, uh, kind of wrap it up a little bit. But... Uh, but I want to refer you to go back to one of my shows, especially the one, uh, Islam, Messiah, Antichrist, and the number 666. I'm going to share something from that show that I did uh, regarding the Mahdi, because I believe this is very important in understanding um, the desire for Islam possibly for the Temple Mount today. 
Because when we go back in history, you're going to find out something you probably never heard before. And it might surprise you because uh, there's such a big stir and fight over the Temple Mount right now. And when you understand the history and understand why they built the Dome of the Rock in the first place, you're going to wonder why are they fighting for it. But I believe it is basically fighting for it because of the eschatological sorry, uh, belief in the Mahdi, the coming of the Mahdi. Now, it is... Uh, is belief in the promised Messiah confined to the followers of Islam, or does it exist in other religions too? Now, this was a question that was asked uh, to a leader in, you know, one of the Islamic, um, I don't want to say, uh, one of the leaders in Islam, and somebody asked him this question. This is taking strictly from um, their their works, okay? Ayatollah Abrim Amini, translated by, I can't say his name, but it is out of an Al-Mahdi, Al-Imam Al-Mahdi, the just leader of humanity. You can get this online if you type that in, and you can get their whole treatise and their whole thesis on the Mahdi from the words of leaders in Islam themselves. I like to do that because I think it's very important to have what they say about themselves as opposed to what others say about them. The question that was asked uh, is the belief of the promised Madid uh, confined to the followers of Islam or does it exist in other religions was answered in this way. Mr. Hosh Yar said this, in fact, this belief is not limited to the Muslims alone. In almost all religions and heavenly creeds, one can find a similar belief in the future Savior. The followers of these religions believe that there, is, there will come a time when the world will become corrupt and engulfed in crisis. Evil and injustice will become the rule of the day. Disbelief will cover the entire world. At that time, the universal Savior of the world will appear. With remarkable divine help, he will restore the purity of faith and defeat materialism with the help of divine worship. Not only are the, ti- are, are the tidings to be found in revealed books like the Zand or the Pazand and Gemist's name of the Zoroastrians, the Torah, and other biblical books of the Jews, and the Gospels of the Christians. Such information can also be seen more or less among the Brahmins and the Buddhists. Now remember, keep in mind, this is a a leader of Islam speaking. The followers of all religions and traditions maintain such a belief and are waiting the appearance of such a commanding figure under the divine protection. Each tradition recognizes this figure with a different name and specific title. The Zoroastrians call him Shoashinyat, meaning the savior of the world. The Jews know him as the Messiah, whereas the Christians regard him as the savior Messiah. However, each group believes that this divinely ordained savior will be among them. 
The Zoroastrians believe he is Persian, and among the followers of Zoroaster, the Jews maintain that he will be among the children of Israel and the follower of Moses. The Christians think he will be one among them. Muslims believe that he will be among the Hashemites and among the direct descendants of the prophet. In Islam, he has been fully introduced, whereas other religions, this is not so. So did you hear that? In Islam, he has been fully introduced, whereas in other religions, it is not so. Well, let's, with that in mind, I want to take you into the history of the Temple Mount with Islam. We stopped last week at uh, where the Jews lost, or the Romans lost control of the Temple Mount, and it became part of Islam. They conquered uh, the Roman carriers that were all over the land for years. And so Islam became the prominent, dominant um, possessor of Jerusalem and the temple site. Now, in his book, The Fight for Jerusalem, Dorgold really puts things in perspective as he delivers a brief but concise summation of the history of Islam and the three holy cities. For those of you who have listened to any of my shows on Islam, some of this information might be repetitive, but I I, I can guarantee you, you're going to have information that is new. And so, that which you know, may you know it better. That which you don't know, or my challenge is to give you something you don't know. Um, But I like it how he puts it all together. So I'm going to share with you what he says. The religion of Islam was born in the Arabian city of Mecca, not far from where Muhammad bin Abdullah of the Hashemite clan of the Quraysh received his first revelation of the Quran in the year 610 in a cave on a mountain known as Jabal Nur, the mountain of light. Mecca was also the vicinity of the hill Minya where Abraham had been tested according to Islam, and that is Islamic tradition, and brought his son Ishmael and not Isaac as the Hebrew Bible for sacrifice only to be halted by the last-minute intervention of Gabriel. According to the Quran, to 127, Mecca was where Abraham and Ishmael built the holy house of worship, the Kaaba. In accordance with a divine commandment that had been originally founded by Adam, this was the first house of worship to be built for mankind. The Quran states that pilgrimage to the house is a duty to God for all that can make the journey. This pilgrimage to Mecca called the Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam. And I believe that there are six pillars of Islam. And the last one being Jihad, which is not really stated as the five pillars, but I believe there is five pillars plus Jihad, which is the highest uh, pillar and where everyone wants to get to. 
the secondary center of sanctity for Islam was the Arabian city of Medina, where Muhammad and his early followers migrated and obtained refuge from persecution in Mecca in an event that became known as the Hijra. Years later, this 250-mile flight from Mecca northward to Medina would be used to mark the beginning of the Muslim calendar. It was also in Medina where Muhammad established the foundations of the first Islamic state before conquering Mecca itself some years later. Medina was additionally a place of further revelations of the Quran, which are distinguished as being either Meccan or Median verses. Gives you a little bit of insight into how the Quran is laid out and how the Hadith have taken form. Now, these varied traditions of the location of Abraham's mere sacrifice of his son and the establishment of the holiest house of worship, which is the Kaaba, and a center of religious pilgrimage were all special attributes of Jerusalem according to the Jewish faith. In Islam, they were applied exclusively to the holy city of Mecca, making the Arabian city the unquestionably primary center of sanctity for Muslim Muslims worldwide. Moreover, while Jerusalem served additionally as the political capital of ancient Israel as well, this role in early Islam was assumed by the holy city of Medina. Both, both Mecca and Medina were additionally locations where divine revelation was given and the Quran was communicated to Muhammad. So he wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't, you know, it was in Arabia. And Mecca and Medina became the sole cities. By comparison, according to Islamic tradition, the divine message received by Muhammad in Jerusalem was as much more limited in nature. So as we see, there is going to be some divine revelation. And I'm going I'm to sh- uh, show you what that is. Given this background, it is not surprising that a clear prioritization emerged from ranking the importance of these holy cities. There is a hadith or oral tradition according to which Muhammad stated, one prayer in my mosque in Medina is worth 10,000 prayers. And one prayer... And, and one prayer at the al Mosque is worth... A thousand prayers, and one prayer in the sacred mosque of Mecca is worth worth one hundred thousand prayers. Now the Akasa Mosque is the mo- the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. This is why we they, they say that that Jerusalem in you know one two three is the third highest. Well, we're going to take a look and see if that is actually even something they really claim. Now, if Jerusalem was to emerge, in effect, as the third holiest city in Islam, what unique events in the new Arabian faith would transpire there so that it would acquire this special status? For Jerusalem appears in the Quran only implicitly in the first verse of Surah 17, which has been the subject of considerable interpretation and analysis. 
this says, it says, Glory to him who has made his servant go by night from the sacred mosque, Al-Qasid Al-Haram, to the farther mosque, Al-Masqid Al-Qasa, whose surroundings we have blessed, that we may show him some of our signs. The servant in, in the verse is the Prophet Muhammad, and the sacred mosque is located in Mecca. But what exactly is the farther mosque? The farther mosque could not have been in Medina since Muhammad's night journey occurred in 620 prior to the migration of his Muslim community from Mecca to Medina in 622. So according to early Muslim interpretation, the farther mosque was in heaven, and the verse essentially described the ascent of the prophet Muhammad, from which he later returns. However, what emerged as the more accepted interpretation was that Muhammad's night journey described the Quranic verse, described here in the Quranic verse, was to Jerusalem. So we kind of see a little, you know, idea of where, you know, this value in Jerusalem began. Upon arrival, Al-Barak was, who is a creature, and I'm, I'm going to go into detail more on this, he was tied to an iron ring alongside the gate to the farther mosque. In, in the last hundred years, a tradition developed that the ring was along the western wall. Now, hang on, because I know you don't know what Al-Barak is, and I'm going to explain it to you here. But there's a reason I'm, I'm saying this first. Now, according to his own account, Muhammad prayed there, kneeling twice. Then, led by Gabriel, Muhammad received, respectively, at each set of the seven heavens that they believe... Um, exist by Adam, John, and Jesus, Idris, which is Enoch, Aaron, Moses, and finally Abraham. At the height of his ascent, Muhammad rose up to the divine presence in an event called the Al-Miraj, where he received the commandment for prayer initially 50 times a day and reduced later to five. Now, in the truth, the book in the truth about Muhammad by Robert Spencer, he actually has the night journey uh, recorded in here. And I want to read this vision to you to give you an understanding of what this is. It was around this time that Muhammad went on his famous night journey, Mirage or Ascension which Islamic tradition identifies as the miraculous trip from Mecca to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, according to these traditions, Muhammad ascended into heaven from the Temple Mount and met the other prophets. The only thing the Quran has, has to say about it is this, glory to Allah who did take his servant from, for a journey by night from the sacred mosque to the farther mosque, whose precincts, we did bless, in order that we might show him some of our signs, for he is the one who heareth and seeth all things. 17.1 There is no Quranic identification of the farther mosque with any mosque in Jerusalem, but the Hadith is very clear, 
clear on the identification of its location with Jerusalem. The vision was a dramat was as dramatic as his initial encounter with great Gabriel. <clears throat> Muhammad described the vision to one of his of the Muslims as beginning while I was lying in Al Hatim or Al Hajjar, that is an area in Mecca opposite of the Kaaba, identified by Islamic tradition as the burial place of Hagar and Ishmael. When Gabriel came and stirred me with his foot, I sat up, <clears throat> up but nothing, but not, saw nothing and lay down again. He came a second time and stirred me with his foot. I sat up and saw nothing and lay down again. He came to me a third time and stirred me with his foot. And suddenly someone came to me and cut my body open from here to there, and he gestured from his throat to his pubic area. The one who had come to him, Muhammad continued, then took out my heart. Then a golden tray full of belief was brought to me, and my heart was washed and was filled with belief, and then returned to its original place. Then a white animal, which was smaller than a mule and bigger than a donkey, was brought to me. This was the Barak, the, the Barak which Muhammad further described as an animal white and long, larger than a donkey but smaller than a mule, who would place his hoofs a distance equal to the range of vision. It was, he said, half mule, half donkey, with wings on its side with which it propelled its feet. When I came up from the from out to mount him, Muhammad reports, he shied. Gabriel placed his hand on the mane and said, Are you not ashamed, Al-Barak, to behave this way? By God, none more honorable before by God, none more honorable before God than Muhammad has ever ridden you before. The animal is so ashamed that he broke out into a sweat and stood still so that I could mount him. Then they went to the temple mount and from there to heaven itself. I was carried on it, and Gabriel set out with me till we reached the nearest heaven. When he asked for the gate to be opened, he asked, Who is it? Gabriel answered, Gabriel. It was, it was asked, Who is accompanying you? Gabriel replied, Muhammad. It was asked, Has Muhammad been called? Gabriel replied in the affirmative. Then it was said, he is welcomed. What an excellent visit his is. Muhammad enters the first heaven where he encounters Adam. Gabriel prods Muhammad. This is your father, Adam. Pay him your greeting. Greetings. The Muhammad of Islam duly greets the first man who responds. You are welcome, O pious son and pious prophet. Gabriel then carries Muhammad to the second heaven where the scene at the gate is reenacted and once again John the Baptist and Jesus greet him. You are welcome, O pious brother and pious prophet. In the third heaven, Joseph greets him in the same words. And Muhammad and Gabriel go on, greeted by other prophets at other levels of heaven. Moses in the, is in the sixth heaven, occasioning another dig at the Jews. When I left him, Muhammad says, he, he wept. Someone asked him, what makes you weep? 
Moses said, I would weep because after me there has been sent to Muhammad as a prophet, a young man whose followers were inter paradise in greater numbers than my followers. In the seventh heaven, Muhammad meets Abraham, has further visions and receives the command that the, that the Muslims pay 50, pray 50 times daily. When Muhammad started on his journey back, he passed by Moses who asked him, what have you been been ordered to do? Muhammad replied, I have been ordered to offer 50 prayers a day. Moses offered him some advice. Your followers cannot bear 50 prayers a day, and by Allah, I have tested people before you. I have tried my level best with Bani Israel in vain. Go back to your Lord and ask for a reduction to lessen your followers' burden. So Muhammad returned to Allah and got the number of daily prayers reduced to 40. But Moses still thought it was too many. The prophets of Islam kept going between Allah and Moses until the number of daily prayers for Muslims was only five. At this point, Moses still doubted that Muhammad's followers were up to the challenge, saying, your followers cannot bear five prayers a day, and no doubt I have got an experience of the people before. You and I have tried my level best with Benny Israel, so go back to your Lord and ask for a reduction to lessen your followers' burden. But this time, Muhammad would not go back. I have requested so much of my Lord that I feel ashamed, but I am satisfied now and surrender to Allah's order. And as he left, he says, I hear, heard a voice saying, I have passed my order and have lessened the burden of my worshippers. The prophet of Islam also described the other prophets for his followers. On the night of my al-Isra journey by night to the heavens, I saw the prophet Musa, or Moses, who was a thin person with lank hair looking like one of the men of the tribe of Shana. I saw Issa, Jesus, Jesus, who was of average height with red face as if he had just come out of, a, out of a bathroom. How strange is that? And I, re, and I resemble Prophet Abraham, Abraham more than any of his offspring does. Then I was given two cups, one containing milk and one containing wine. Gabriel said, drink whichever you like. I took the milk and drank it. Gabriel said, you have accepted what is natural, true religion, I, uh, meaning Islam. And if you had taken the wine, your followers would have gone astray. When they heard the stories of his night journey, the Karash again scoffed at the prophet Islam. By God, this is a plain absurdity. The caravan takes a month to go to Syria and a month to return. And can Muhammad do the return journey in one night? Challenged by some who had been to Jerusalem, Muhammad claimed one further miracle to con- in connection with the night journey. When the people of Karash did not believe me, I stood up in al Hijar, and Allah displayed Jerusalem in front of me, and I began describing it to them while I was looking at it. Asked Asked how many doors were in the farthest mosque, Muhammad later recalled. I had not counted them, so I began to look at it and counted one by one and gave them information concerning them. I also gave information about their caravan, which 
was on the way and its signs. They found them as I had related. Evidently, however, his descriptions of Jerusalem were not altogether convincing. Even some of the Muslims abandoned their faith and challenged Muhammad's most faithful follower, Abu Bakr, to do the same. Abu Bakr was contemptuous. If he says so, then it is true. And what is so surprising is that he tells me that communication with God, from God, from heaven, to earth, come to him in an hour or a day or a night, and I believe him. And that is more extraordinary than that which you boggle. Allah consoled Muhammad. Behold, we told thee that thy Lord does encompass mankind round about. We granted the visions which we showed thee, and as a trial for men, as also the cursed tree mentioned in the Quran, we put terror and warning into them, but it only increases their inordinate transgression. Later, Muhammad seems to have retreated from the claim that this was a bodily journey. Aisha explained, the apostle's body remained where it was, but God removed his spirit by night. The night journey has become firmly embedded in the Islamic consciousness, such that it it today serves as the foundation of the Islamic claim to Jerusalem as one of the holy cities of Islam. But at the time that Muhammad first spoke about it, it only further inflamed his already poor relationship with the Quraysh. So we get an idea here of what kind of relationship Islam has with Jerusalem. Hold on a second. Okay. And that is an interesting story of the night journey. And now you heard what they actually say about it. Muslim theologians debated whether the night journey and the ascent were part of a vision that is some kind of spiritual experience or an actual event that physically occurred. So they're still doing that today. They're still debating this issue. The idea that it was only a vision was supported by the famous Sufi scholar Hassan al-Basir in 642 and 728 AD. And even more importantly, by Aisha of 613 to 678. And she was the daughter of Abu Bakr and favorite wife of Muhammad's who in their later years was frequently consulted on Muhammad's saying and practices. Now, the idea that the night journey was only a vision was also the position adopted by the caliph, Mawawahi, who would establish the Umayyad Caliphate in Damascus. Now, Damascus in Syria plays a a certain role here. So um, listen to when I talk about it. However, these interpretations would not prevail in the Islamic world at that time, but they're coming back today as a prominent uh, role that Jerusalem plays and the vision 
in which Muhammad had on the night journey. Now, those of you who uh, listen to my shows will understand and know what the Caliphate is, but for those of you who are new to to my episodes, the Caliphate is the first system of government established in Islam, and it represented the political unity of the Muslim Ummah, which it means community. The Caliph is the title for the ruler of the Islamic Ummah. And it's an Islamic community ruled by Sharia law. The Umayyad Caliphate that I mentioned, and the reason I'm mentioning it is because I'm going to talk about it a little bit more uh, here, is uh, was the second of the four major Arab Caliphates established after the death of Muhammad. It was ruled uh, it was ruled by the Umayyad dynasties, whose name derives from Umayyad ibn Abd Shams, the great grandfather of the first Umayyad caliph. So Al Al Badawi and other Quranic commentaries, such as Al Jala, Yaren, conclude that the farther mosque in the Quran was Bay Al Mak. Makdis, which best translates into the Holy Temple. Indeed, Bayat al-Madis is very close to the Hebrew term for the temple. So, Muhammad was speaking about the temple in Jerusalem. Even though, hold on a second. Dogs want to go in and out, so uh, so uh, what I was trying to say is that they're talking about the holy temple uh, because the mosque hadn't been built yet. Now, last week I talked about how there's a denial of the mo- the temple ever being built, and that it was considered a mosque. Um, and we're going to take a look at what the Al-Qasa Mosque was. So what about this mosque? Um, The Al-Qasa Mosque, they thought, was at first in heaven due to this journey and that that was where the Prophet Muhammad was carried at first. Jafar al-Sadiq then heard the remark, people say, People say that Al-Qasa is in Jerusalem rather than debate the point. Um, he said uh, this interpretation may have effect. Uh, he said he just answered that the mosque of Kufa was superior to that of Jerusalem instead of denying it altogether. And the reason he did this um, was the you know it may have affected the importance of Jerusalem for Shiism which had many other holy shrines for pilgrimage. Now, the night journey may be the main source of Islam's religious connection to Jerusalem, but it is not the only connection. Islam inherited the founders of the early religions, of, of the, 
not only do do um, and what I mean by that is um, Abraham, Moses, and uh, uh, Jesus all appear in the Quran, but so do David and Solomon, who are also re- regarded as early prophets that are appropriated by Islam. In this way, Jerusalem became important to Islam not only due to the night journey, but also because it had important had been important for key events in the growth of both Christianity and Judaism, which Islam saw itself ultimately correcting and even replacing. This dualism is also reflected in the direction of prayer in Islam, the Qibla. This, there, there is no explicit reference in the Quran to what was precisely the first Qibla. And Qibla means simply the direction that should be, that, uh, should be faced when a Muslim prays. <clears throat> and so should it be directed toward Mecca? Should it be directed toward the Al-Qasa Mosque on the Temple Mount? Of course, the Jews always prayed towards the Temple Mount. Uh, it became commonly understood in Islamic tradition that Muslim prayer was directed originally toward Jerusalem at first, but two years after the flight of Muhammad from Mecca to Medina in 622, Muhammad uh, is instructed to change the direction of of Muslim prayer from Jerusalem to Mecca. The original choice of Jerusalem was has been explained by the fact that the Kaaba in Mecca was still a polytheistic shrine and was hence an unfitting direction of prayer for Muhammad's new monotheistic um, faith. So they had prayer, first of all, based towards Jerusalem, but later Muhammad got a revelation to go towards the Kaaba. True, Jerusalem was no longer the direction of Muslim prayer, but by virtue of it once having served this role, it acquired sanctity for Islam that has not been abandoned by them. The first caliph, Abu Bakr, very famous um, caliph. There's a lot of writings by him, even though he only served or was there for two years. He came in 632 to 634 is when he actually served. He was chosen by the consensus of the leadership of the Islamic community. And it was under his brief rule that the expansion of Islam beyond the Arabian Peninsula was formally launched. And that's why he's so important. Not only that, his writings too. Abu Bakr, and you spell A-B-U-B-A-K-R, was followed by Umar bin al-Khattab in 634 to 644, 10 years, who decreed that Jews and Christians should be removed from the from Arabia in order to fulfill a statement made by Muhammad on his deathbed. And he said this, let there not be two religions in Arabia. What emerges from this timetable is the likelihood that Jerusalem itself was not a primary strategic objective of the advancing Arab armies. In contrast to the Crusades, the Arab invasion did not set 
the capture of Jerusalem as their main goal. So when, during the Crusades, the Crusades wanted Jerusalem because it was a holy city. The Crusades did not go after Jerusalem for the same reason, and that wasn't their main goal. Upon entering the Temple Mount compound, according to Al-Tabiri, Umar asked Kabbal Al-Bair, it's very hard to say these words, these names, a Yemenite Jew who had converted to Islam and accompanied, accompanied the Caliph about what the proper direction of prayer should be, Kab answered that they should pray toward the rock. In another version, Kab suggested that they should place a mosque behind the foundation stone so that the two directions of prayer, that of Moses and that of Muhammad, merge with one another. Now, the foundation stone is a holy stone in the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The foundation stone, also called Shekra in Arabic, even Hashatira in Hebrew, or simply rock, is believed by Talmudic sages and many modern Jews to be the place from which the rest of the world was created, the first bit of the world to come into being. Writings dating back to the Roman period attested to the significance of the foundation stones. The spiritual significance of the stone extends far beyond it being regarded as the place from whence the world was created. According to the Talmud, this was also the location where God gathered dust that was made into Adam and that Adam, Cain, Abel, and Noah offered sacrifices to God. Modern Jews identify the rock with references with Mount Moriah in the Bible as the Temple Mount was thought to have been built over this natural hill, the tallest in the old city, Jerusalem. Jewish resources also consider the rock to be where Abraham almost sacrificed his son, Isaac. What Cobb was suggesting, in essence, was that, that Umar pray in the direction of both the Holy of Holies and Mecca at the same time. Umar apparently rejected Cobb's proposal of directing Muslim prayer toward the foundation stone. Oh, Cobb, you are imitating the Jewish religion, he further explained. We are not commanded to vener- venerate the rock, but we are commanded to venerate the Kaaba. And if you need to know about the Kaaba, you can go back to one of my shows on the Kaaba and the Black Stone. Well, that's where I talk about it, is the, is the, the program that talks about the Black Stone and the Moon God. Umar's warning to Kaab reflected a theme that would uh, resurface in Islamic religious thought every few centuries. Islam must avoid absorbing innovations known as abid'ah in its original practices that are borrowed from other faiths. So they really don't want to borrow what is from other faiths. They want to borrow or they want to use what is theirs. But according to the truth about the book on truth about Muhammad, there is quite a bit borrowed from Christianity and from uh, the Jews. But Umar, he may not have been willing to 
defied the area of the foundation stone as the Jews were. But he nonetheless showed his respect for this holy site. He built a modest wooden mosque on the southern end of the Temple Mount. A Christian pilgrim named Acrif, who visited Jerusalem in 680 AD, described it as an oblong house. The um, Muslims pieced together with upright planks and large beams over some ruined remains. He had heard that it could hold 3,000 people. The Dome of the Rock over the foundation stone, which is frequently misnamed the Mosque of Omar, would only be constructed decades later. But Omar clearly restored the Temple Mount after centuries as a holy site, even though Islam had not yet fully established for itself whether the old area of the Jewish Holy of Holies possessed any special sanctity and should be venerated. Now, it should be recalled that under the Byzantines, the Temple Mount became a garbage dump. And as noted earlier um, in what I was saying, their construction projects in Jerusalem were undertaken in other parts of the city. So, there is no historical debate, however, over the fact that with the Islamic conquest, which was called the cave, underneath the Temple Mount, its entrance way was the gate in the Western Wall that was located at the closest point possible to the Holy of Holies above. Clearly, exclusivist restrictions with respect to the non-Muslims in Mecca and Medina did not apply the holy site, did not apply to the holy sites of Jerusalem. So what they did is they they and we've seen this on the news with the <clears throat> excavated sites underneath the the um, Temple Mount and talked about this last week uh, where they are trying to destroy the archaeological evidence um, under the Temple Mount. They also built a mosque underneath the Temple Mount. So what was the Umayyad Caliphate's political interest in Jerusalem? It was uh, during that that caliphate reign that the Quranic verses about the farther mosque and Muhammad's night journey be, came to be specifically identified with Jerusalem. So there was a lot of debate up until the Umayyad Caliphate established it as Jerusalem, uh, that he actually went to Jerusalem and not to heaven. Uh, Ali, who is one of the Umayyad Caliphates, moved his seat of government from Medina to Kufa in Iraq. Ali was murdered in Kufa, and this is why it's important. It's an important city in Islam. He was murdered in 661. Now, like its predecessors, um, he this happened to them as well. His tomb was erected in Najaf another Iraqi town four miles from Kufa, and it would become an important center of pilgrimage for Ali's supporters, who became known as the partisans of Ali, or simply the Shiites. And this is where you get the Shiites from. So why was the Dome of the Rock built in the first place if they were supposed to pray to the Gaba? Well, 
we we established that the night journey uh, went to Jerusalem, and he went to Jerusalem. But what was that for? What was the whole purpose of going to Jerusalem? <clears throat> now, it, uh, one of the caliphs, Muawiya, I cannot say his name, forgive me, M-U-A-W-I-Y-A, shifted the seat of the caliphate from Medina, which had been the first capital of the first Islamic state, to Damascus. Mawiyah also had himself proclaimed caliph in Jerusalem in 660. He served as caliph for 20 years until 680. Islamic historians report that Umayyad's rulers also sought to transfer the pulpit of the Prophet Muhammad from Medina to Syria, where they would rule. So the Umayyad caliphate caused a great division. Listen, listen a little bit further. It was the fourth Umayyad caliph, Abd al-Malik, in 683-705, to who in this period of the rival cal- caliphate of Ibn al-Zabar decided to erect the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount. It was not designed as a mosque. It was a golden-domed octagonal sanctuary over what had been the foundation stone in, in Jewish faith. During this very period, the Umayyad rulers were concerned that upon making the Hajj, their subjects in Syria would be forced to declare their loyalty to the rival caliphate of Ibn al-Zabar in Mecca. Shiite historians who had little sympathy for the Umayyads have related that Abd al-Malik, or his son al-Walid, decreed that the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem should temporarily be a place of Muslim pilgrimage instead of the Kaaba in Mecca, which was controlled by the Umayyad's rival. On these historians, one of these historians attributed to Abd al-Malik the statement that pilgrimage to Jerusalem should be equated to pilgrimage to Mecca. So the real reason why the Dome of the Rock was built was actually to establish kind of almost like in Jerusalem when Israel, the ten tribes, and the the Judah and Israel split under King Rehoboam. And Rehoboam caused the ten tribes to sin by establishing an altar of worship of course, it was two other gods, in Samaria so that they would not go to Jerusalem for worship. And we see this in the New Testament. The same thing was happening here. That Dome of the Rock was made as a uh, place to distract people from going doing the Hajj to Mecca so that the Umayyad Caliphate would not move the people that served him. Same type of scenario. So the Dome of the Rock was not really uh, made to fight against Israel or to establish itself against Israel, but against itself in the divisions that were happening within Islam. 
Um, let's see where I want to go because I want to watch my time. But even though there is a suggestion and that they tried to build this mosque to um, distract people from going to Mecca, it, uh, it didn't, it would, you know, that Umayyad Caliph decided not to suspend pilgrimage to Mecca, um, <clears throat> which had been one of the pillars of the Islamic faith from Muhammad. Nevertheless, the Umayyad still had a direct political interest in elevating the importance of Jerusalem in order to compete with the rival caliphate in Mecca. Was this the source of Ab al-Malik's decision to build the Dome of the Rock? Yes, I think so. He wished to provide a monument that would enshrine Muhammad's night journey to Jerusalem and his ascent to heaven. In 688, when the work of the Dome of the Rock began, the night journey alluded to the in the Quran. Uh, the night journey alluded to in the Quran had not yet been definitely linked to Jerusalem. The spectacular Arabic calligraphy along the walls of the Dome of the Rock does not even mention the night journey, which I'll explain in just a minute. What did it explain? Now, this is where you're going to come into the spiritual battle in which we face as Christians and, you know, how Jerusalem is a place where God will set forth who he is and establish his reign and that all nations will know him and his son Jesus, okay, from Jerusalem. And so you're going to see here the spiritual side of this battle in which we are are engaged in uh, here as we continue to see how the Dome of the Rock was first of all meant to divide the Islamic fractions not against Israel, and also to attack Christian. Okay? Instead of the main interior, the main interior, and you'll see, you know, on one of my pictures, you'll see this writing, this Arabic writing. The inscriptions appear to be directed against the substantial Christian population in Jerusalem. So, the mosque is not only against itself, it's against who? Christians. This is what is inscribed in the mosque. Praise be to God who begets no son and has no partner. There is also a similar sentence. He is God, one eternal. He does not beget, nor is he begotten, and he has no peer. Some of the inscriptions are, are whole verses lifted from the Quran, while others are just newly written text. The strongest inscriptions on the Dome of the Rock were placed on copper plates right over its eastern and southern gates. Now, where is Jesus going to come through? Not through the mosque, but he's going to come through the eastern gates. And this is what they say on the eastern side of the mosque. The unity of God and the prophecy of Muhammad are true, and the sonship of Jesus and the Trinity are false. That's a battle, a spiritual battle right there. 
Now, inside, the inscriptions conclude with a call to the people of the book to adopt Islam. None of the inscriptions seek to challenge the centrality of this, of Mecca in Islam, which further undermines the argument that the Umayyads hoped to make Jerusalem an alternative site of pilgrimage. This also perhaps explains Abd al-Malik's motivation to build the Dome of the Rock. He wanted an Islamic structure that would rival Constantine's church. And the... Uh, the Holy Sepulchre, but he also wanted to challenge Christianity. Uh, Constantine, and whether he was a Christian or not, is up for debate. So, you know, in general, the Umayyads used an architecture used architecture to symbolize the challenge they sought to pose to the previous supremacy of the Byzantine Christians. Muya's armies even reached the walls of Constantinople in 668 and again in 674. Clearly, the Umayyads were on the front lines of Islam's war against the Byzantine Empire. Undoubtedly, this affected the behavior over time of the Umayyads toward their Christian subjects. Okay. So, um, Abd al-Malik's son, al-Walid, 705-715, who would build the great Al-Qasim Mosque at the southern end of the Temple Mount, also altered some of the great Christian houses of worship in his realm. He converted the Cathedral of St. John, the Baptist, and Damascus into the famous Umayyad Mosque. He, he removed the dome of the church in Belbek, in what is today Lebanon for the Al-Qasim Mosque in Jerusalem. So, I'm trying to think because I really want to get all this information in for you. <clears throat> Now, one of the uh, one theory for the greater degree of tolerance exhibited during the first hundred years of Islamic rule was that Arab conquerors who subdued their lands were still a minority, needing the cooperation of sub, sub of the subject peoples that they ruled. So, if you have seen in, in the Quran any kind of tolerance for Christianity, it was because they weren't in power yet. Uh, they they tend to do this until they're in power. They um, in their minority, they are pretty cooperative with the host nation or those who are larger than them. As the demography of Syria and Palestine changed over the decades, there would be less political necessity for taking into account the religious needs of non-Muslims. Now, over time, the special taxes imposed by Islamic rulers on non-Muslims like the jizya, or the poll tax, and the kairaj, the land tax, took their toll on these demographic balances, increasing the number of adherents to Islam. But in Jerusalem, the dem demography of its residents did not change so quickly. 
So during the Umayyad period, the Caliph Salaman considered for a time making Jerusalem its capital, but he never carried through with the plan, nor did the Umayyads or their predecessor adopt the Byzantine capital of Palestine, Caesarea. Instead, they preferred to make the Byzantine capital of Palestine, Caesarea, uh, no, in, in Ramol, over time, the Islamic world would adopt many different imperial capitals, including Medina, Damascus, Baghdad, Cairo, and Istanbul, but Jerusalem would never become the capital of the Islamic empire. Now, as a side note, I want you to know something. This Sufyani is an evil, apocryphal character of Islamic eschatology. The Sufani will emerge before the Mahdi from the depths of Damascus. Now, we're hearing all this stuff out of Damascus. And uh, Damascus plays a very prominent role in Islam. But Islam is actually going to fight against it to a point. But uh, there is a belief that the Sufyani will emerge before the Ahmadi. Now the term Sufiani is a term referring to his descent from the progeny of Abu Sufyan. He will be one of the many Muslim tyrants that the Mahdi will have to face in the Middle East. The Sufiani is not the Dijal. The Ahadith regarding the Sufiani specify that he is a tyrant who will spread corruption and mischief on the earth before the Mahdi. He will be such a tyrant that he he will kill the children and rip out the bellies of women. The Sufyani will murder those from the household of the Prophet and will rule over Syria. When he hears about the Mahdi, he will send an army to seize and kill him. However, the earth will swallow his army before it even reaches the Mahdi. Now, you put that in perspective of what is happening in Syria today, that maybe this is a a rumbling of that. Maybe it's a precursor. But the problems in Syria are prophesied in their own works that there is going to be problems with Syria and Damascus and they are going to fight against Islam. Kind of interesting. Um, now Damascus and Syria is of course the capital and the largest city of Syria. Um all through history, you can see that that Jerusalem always played a side had a side role in Islam. All the caliphates never never took possession of it, never honored it to be a, a possession that they uh, went after. And it also the ambivalence towards uh, Jerusalem was also in the religious writings. There is no writings that actually said that Jerusalem was a holy place. The only place that connects um, Jerusalem with Islam is the night journey. And I want to tell you that this night journey is the key to understanding 
what it means to them today because the night journey plays a role in the arrival of the Mahdi. Um, <clears throat> okay. Let me see. I'm going to try to skip over some of the information I have because um, I don't want it to be repetitious. I want you to, to hear some of the things that uh, that I really, really want you to get. Um, I've got a lot of notes here and kind of stirring through them and, you know, flipping down to see what do I want to share with you. Um There was at one point that they wanted to Islamicize Jerusalem. Previous Islamic buildings that had been converted to church became Muslim shrines again. So, you know, during the Crusades, there was a lot of back and forth of who who possessed Jerusalem. And it was the Crusades that went back and forth in taking it from Islam. It really wasn't. The Jews never really had control of the city until, uh, I believe, the 1967 war, when they took control of the city. So they didn't even take control of the city when they became a nation. But like I said in last week's show, they never left the the country of Israel completely. Uh, A lot of them left because of the persecution of the Roman procreator, Avestian, who made it very, very difficult for them to live there. Um, Jerusalem was uh, viewed as a pivotal point in the struggle between the Christian West and Islamic world uh, continually through the Crusades. Um, in order to build up his power against al-Muslam, al-Kamil con- con- concluded a 10-year treaty in 1229 with the Holy Rem- Roman Emperor Frederick II, accor- according to which Jerusalem would be returned to Christian rule, provided that the Muslims could still manage their religious affairs on the Temple Mount. The text of the agreement read, the Sultan cedes Jerusalem to the emperor or to his representatives. The emperor may do as he desires regarding the fortification of the city and other matters. Al-Qasa Mosque, known to the Christians, uh, the Temple of, of Solomon and the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omar, known as the Temple of the Lord, in all the area, Hamram al-Sharif, that is the Temple Mount area, will remain in the hands of Muslim authorities who will worship there in accordance with their laws, including the Muslims called to prayer. The keys of the gates to the Hamram al-Sharif will also remain in Muslim hands. A Christian desiring to go to the Haram to pray will be permitted to do so. So that was the agreement in 1229. Uh, Still even Saladin's great victory in 
1187 never altered the religious status of Jerusalem as the third holiest city in Islam. After Mecca and Medina, according to Islamic thinkers at the time, pilgrimage to Mecca was clearly defined as Hajj and was one of the five pillars of Islam, while pious journey or visit to Jerusalem was technically called Yizra. So they still didn't honor Jerusalem very highly. Now, the Mongol invasion in the 13th century affected both the physical and spiritual status of Jerusalem. Turkish tribes fleeing from the Mongols moved into the Middle East, including the Khawazanians, who were recruited as allies by the Egyptians, Egyptian Ayyubins. The Khawazanians overran Jerusalem in 1244 and devastated what remained of the Holy City. Jerusalem was further depopulated. Mostly local Christians remained who had been tolerated by the Crusaders as well. There was virtually no Muslim population left. With the invasion of the Mongol armies of Genghis Khan's grandson, Holodalgu, into Palestine, Jerusalem was virtually deserted. Most of its residents fled from the advancing Mongol armies. After the defeat of the Mongols by the Memluk armies, Egypt, whose sultan had intermarried with the Ayyubids, Jerusalem became under a new Memluk empire based in Cairo. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a pattern that there wasn't as much interest in Jerusalem as you see with the Jews. But yet the Jews hadn't possessed the land or Jerusalem, or the Temple Mount. And that's why we were talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel where the time of the Gentiles has overrided. They have tried to build the Temple from time to time, but were stopped. Um, One time there was a fire that ruined everything, and they couldn't continue. So they have always tried to rebuild the Temple, but never have been because it's been overrun by... Uh, Christian empires, and also uh, Islam. Okay. Now, why is the Temple Mount uh, importance of Islam today? Well, among the major signs, the most anticipated central sign that Muslims are awaiting is the coming of the man known as the Mahdi, who we talked about at the beginning of this show. In Arabic, al-Mahdi means the guided one, which we talked about. He is also sometimes referred to by Shia Muslims as Sahib al-Zaman or al-Mahdi or al-Mantadar, which translated means the Lord of the Age. Hmm, Interesting. And the guided awaited one. The Mahdi is the first of the major signs. This is confirmed by the Ibn Kat the renowned Muslim scholar from the 8th century. And this is what he says. After the lesser signs of the hour appear and increase and increase, mankind will have reached a stage of great suffering. Then the awaited Mahdi will appear. He is the first of the greater clear signs of the hour. Now the coming of the Mahdi is is the central crowning element of all Islamic end-time narratives. So central to Islamic eschatology expectations is the 
coming out of the Mahdi that some Muslim scholars did not even refer to the minor signs as such, but instead referred to them as the signs accompanying the Mahdi. While there are some variations of belief between Sunni and Shia sects of Islam, and while certain quarters of Sunnis reject him altogether, general belief in the Mahdi is not a sectarian issue within Islam, but a universal belief among most Muslims. According to Sakh Mohammed Ishfan Kabani, chairman of the Islamic Supreme Council of America, he says this, the coming of the Mahdi is established doctrine for both Sunni and Shia Muslims, and indeed for all humanity. Ayatollah Bakir al-Sadir and Ayatollah Murtada Mutarahari both Shia Muslim scholars in their book, The Awaited Savior, describe the Mahdi this way. A figure before legendary, more legendary than that of the Mahdi, the Awaited Savior, has not been seen in history in the history of mankind. The threads of the world's events have woven many a fine design in human life, but the pattern of the Mahdi stands high above every other pattern. He has been the vision of the visionaries in history, he has been the dream of all the dreamers of the world. For the ultimate salvation of mankind is the pole star of hope on which the gaze of humanity is fixed. In this quest for the truth about the Mahdi, there is no distinction of any caste, creed, or country. The quest is universal exactly in the same way as the Mahdi himself is universal. He stands resplendent, high above the narrow walls in which humanity is cut up and divided. He belongs to everybody for all that and much more. What exactly is the Mahdi? Surely that is the big question which the thinking people all over the world would like to ask. So indeed, just who is awaited, this awaited one that the Islamic world is longing for and what is it that he does that has them all in such a state of anticipation. In the simplest terms, and I've said this on my shows over and over again, I'm just going to brief it so that you know it, know what we're talking about for those of you who have not listened to my shows. I'm briefing it. In the simplest of terms, the Mahdi is Islam's Messiah or Savior, while the actual term Messiah and Messianism have very clearly Judeo-Christian roots. University of Virginia professor Abdulaziz Abdulhussein Sakadina that are appropriately used in an Islamic context when referring to the Mahdi. In his scholarly work on the subject Islamic Messianism, Sakadina Dina uh, elaborates thusly. The term Messianism in the Islamic context, is frequently used to translate the important concept of the eschatological figure, the Mahdi, who, as the foreordained later, will rise to launch a great social transformation in order to restore and adjust all things under divine guidance. The Islamic Messiah thus embodies the aspiration of his followers in the restoration of the purity of faith, which will bring true and uncorrupted guidance to all mankind, creating a social order and a world free from oppression in which the Islamic revelation will be the norm for all nations. 
Thus, it is fair to say that the rising of the Mahdi is to the majority of Muslims what the return of Jesus is to the Christians. While Christians await the return of Jesus, the Messiah, to fulfill all of God's prophetic promises to the people of God, Muslims await the appearance of the Mahdi to fulfill the purposes. Sheikh Kabani likewise identifies the Mahdi as Islam's primary Messiah figure, and this is what he says. Jews are awaiting the Messiah, Christians are waiting for Jesus, and Muslims are waiting for both the Mahdi and Jesus. All religions describe them as men coming to save the world. Throughout the Islamic world today, there is a call for the restoration of the Islamic Caliphate. The Caliph in Islam may be viewed somewhat as the Pope of the Muslims. The Caliph is viewed as the Vice-Regent for Allah on earth. It is important to understand that when Muslims call for the restoration of the Caliphate, it is ultimately the Mahdi that they are calling for not just the government in the nation, but it is for the Mahdi specifically. For the Mahdi is the awaited final caliph of Islam. As such, Muslims everywhere will be obligated to follow the Mahdi. If you see him, go and give him your allegiance, even if you have to crawl over ice because he is the vice-regent, the caliph of Allah, the Mahdi. He will pave the way for and establish the government of the family or community of Muhammad. Every believer will be obligated to support him. The Mahdi is believed to be the future Muslim world leader who will not only rule over the Islamic world, but also the non-Muslim world as well. The Mahdi is said to lead a world revolution that will establish a new Islamic world order throughout the entire earth. The Mahdi will establish right and justice in the world and eliminate evil and corruption. He will fight against the enemies of the Muslims who would be victorious. He will appear, reappear on the appointed day and then he will fight against forces of evil, which are Christians and Jews, lead a world revolution and set up a new world order based on justice, righteousness, and virtue. Ultimately, the righteous will take the world administration in their own hands and Islam will be victorious over all the religions. He is the precursor of the victory of the truth and the fall of all tyrants. He heralds the end of injustice and oppression and the beginning of the final rise of the son of Islam, which S-U-N of Islam, which will never again set and will ensure happiness and elevation of mankind. The Mahdi is one of Allah's clear, Allah's clear signs, which will soon be made evident to everyone. The Mahdi means, means a method of accomplishing this world revolution will include multiple military campaigns or holy wars, jihad, while some Muslims believe that most of the non-Muslims of the world will convert to Islam peaceful, peaceably during the reign of the Mahdi, most traditions picture the non-Muslim world coming to Islam as a result of being conquered by the Mahdi. Adu Allah 
Rahman Kalani, author of The Last Apocalypse, describes the many battles of the Mahdi. Al-Mahdi will receive a pledge of allegiance as a caliph for Muslims. He will lead Muslims in many battles of jihad. His reign will be a caliphate that follows the guidance of the Prophet. Many battles will ensue between Muslims and the believers during the Mahdi's reign. Even Harun, uh, Yaha, a moderate of very popular Muslim authors, refers to the Mahdi's invasion of numerous Muslim lands. Do you hear that? He refers to the Mahdi's invasion of numerous Muslim lands. They're already starting to conquer Muslim lands. And so there's some debate right now whether or not um, the Mahdi is going to do it or they can start it themselves. The Mahdi will invade all the places between east and west. Islamic tradition pictures the Mahdi as joining with the army of Muslim warriors carrying black flags. The Mahdi will then lead this army to Israel and reconquer it for Islam. The Jews will be slaughtered until every few, very few remain in Jerusalem. Will become and Jerusalem will become the location of the Mahdi's rule over the earth and the Temple Mount. See the connection. See the connection. It's very important that you see this connection. Rashulia Muhammad said, armies carrying black flags will come from Khorasan, which is in Iran. No power will be able to stop them, and they will finally reach Allah, Batel Makadaz in Jerusalem, where they will erect their flags. It is important to note that the reference above to Batul Magdaz in Arabic means the holy house. This is referring to the Dome of the Rock, the mosque, and is located on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In a particularly venomous manner, Egyptian authors Muhammad ibn Izzat and Muhammad Arif comment on the above tradition. The Mahdi will be victorious and eradicate those pigs and dogs and the idols of this time so that there will once again be a caliphate based on prophethood as the Hadith states. Jerusalem will be the location of the rightly guided caliphate and the center of Islamic rule, which will be headed by Imam al-Mahdi. That will abolish the leadership of the Jews and put an end to the domination of Satan. Satans who spit evil into people and cause corruption in the earth, making them slaves of false idols, ruling the world by laws other than the Sharia, Islamic law of the Lord of the world. There is a very famous tradition that is often quoted throughout the Islamic world that speaks of the Mahdi's military campaign against Israel. The tradition is both sickening and very sobering. You've got to listen to this. The prophet said the last hour would not come unless the Muslims will fight against the Jews and the Muslim would kill them until the Jews would hide themselves behind the stone of a tree and the stone of a tree would say, Muslim, I'm with servant of Allah, there was a Jew behind me and come kill him. So this is something they say as a mantra, and I've said this over and over again in what I've been uh, talking about in Islam. So this is their goal. It is said that the Mahdi will have control over the wind and the rain and the crops, 
under the Mahdi's rule, the world will live in prosperity. Islamic tradition relates that Muhammad once said this. In the last days of my Ummah, universal Islamic community, the Mahdi will appear. Allah will give him power over the wind and the rain and the earth will bring forth its foliage. He will give away wealth profusely, flocks will be in abundance, and the Ummah will be large and honored. In those years, my community will enjoy a time of happiness such as they have never experienced before. Heaven will send rain upon them in torrents. The earth will not withhold any of its plants, and wealth will be available to all. A man will stand and say, give me Mahdi, and he will say, take. As a result of the numerous benefits that the Mahdi brings, it is said that the inhabitants of the earth will be possessed with a deep love for him. Allah will show love of him to the hearts of people. Al-Mahdi appears, when he appears, everyone who only talks about him, drinks the love of him, and never talks about anything other than him. While there is more than one tradition regarding the nature of the timing of the Mahdi's ascendancy to power, there is one particular Hadith that places this event at the time of the final peace agreement between the Arabs and the Romans. The Romans should be interpreted as referring to Christians or more generally the West. Although this peace agreement is made with the Romans, it is said to be mediated specifically through a Jew from the priestly lineage of Aaron. The peace agreement will be made for a period of seven years. Get this. Rashuvila Muhammad said, there will be four peace agreements between you and the Romans, Christians. The fourth agreement will be mediated through a person who will be from the prodigy of Hadrat Harun, Honorable Aaron, Moses' brother, and will be upheld for seven years. It appears that the period of this seven-year peace agreement will likewise be the period of the Mahdi's reign. While there are a few traditions that specify that Mahdi will reign on the earth for as much as eight or possibly nine years, the mo- most traditions state that the time of his reign will be seven years. The prophet said this, he will divide the property and will govern the people by the Sunnah of their prophet and establish Islam on earth. He will remain seven years, then die, and the Muslims will pray over him. (laughs) The prophet said the Mahdi will fill the earth with equity and justice as it will be filled with oppression and tyranny, and he will rule for seven years. It is said that he, and I said this in one of my shows about the white horse, that he claims to be the white horse of Revelation, and it is the white horse of the four horsemen of Apocalypse. It's not the white horse that Jesus, we know, our Messiah, will be coming on, but the white horse of the Apocalypse. He said that he will come and he will conquer. Uh, it says, and I saw and behold a white horse, he that sat on him went forth conquering to conquer. That is who the Mahdi claims to be. In one final interesting series of traditions regarding the Mahdi, we find that he said to, he is said to produce some previously undiscovered Bible scrolls and even the Ark of the Covenant. Kaba al-Abbar says, 
he will be called Mahdi because he will guide, which means to something hidden and will bring out the Torah and gospel from a town called Antioch. As Suyuti mentioned in Al-Hawi, that the messenger of Allah, may Allah bless him and grant him peace, said this, he is called the Mahdi because he will guide the people into a mountain in Syria from which he will bring out the volumes of the Torah to refute the Jews. At the hands of the Mahdi, the Ark of the Covenant will be brought forth from the lake of Tiberias and taken and placed in Jerusalem. Ad-Dani said that he is called the Mahdi because he will be guided to a mountain in Syria from which he will bring forth the volumes of the Torah with which to argue against the Jews and at the hands of a group of them will come become Muslim. Apparently, the purpose of finding these lost portions of the Old and New Testaments, as well as the Ark of the Covenant, is to help the Mahdi win converts from both Christianity and Judaism. Uh, prior to eradicating the remainder who do not convert to Islam. So, this brings us to what is going on in Jerusalem, and I only have 18 minutes left, and this is prime stuff. What is going on in Jerusalem? I'm taking this from a a, uh, piece I found on the website called Muslim Leader Wants Temple Built. So if you want the full article, you go there. I am only doing pieces of this. This is by Joel Richardson, again, uh, who he wrote the Islamic Antichrist. In a historically unprecedented development, a famous Turkish Muslim leader and a prominent group of Israeli rabbis have joined together on one of their declared goals to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Wow, that really is going to happen? Adnan Akhtar, who uses the pen name of Harun Yaha, Yahya, whatever you say it, is a controversial but highly influential Muslim intellectual and author with over 65 million of his books in circulation worldwide. 65 million! Akhtar recently met with three representatives from the reestablished Jewish Sanhedrin, a group of 71 Orthodox rabbis and scholars from Israel, to discuss how religious Muslims, Jews, and Christians can work together. Listen carefully. The objectives of the alliance include waging a joint intellectual and spiritual battle against the worldwide growing tide of irreligiousness, unbelief, and immorality. But even more unusual is their agreement with regard to the need to rebuild the Jewish temple, a structure Akhtar feels to as the Mashid or the mosque or the palace of Solomon. An official statement about the meeting has been published on the Sanhedrin's website, concluding the statement is the following call, and this is what it said. Out of a sense of collective responsibility for world peace and for all humanity, we have found it timely to call to the world and exclaim that there is a way out of for all peoples. It is etched in a call to all humanity. We are all the sons of one father, the descendants of Adam, and all humanity is but a single family. 
Peace among nations will be achieved through the building of the house of God, where all peoples will serve as foreseen by the king by King Solomon in his prayers as the dedication of the first holy temple. Come, let us love and respect one another and love and honor and hold our heavenly Father in awe. Let us establish a house of prayer in his name in order to worship and serve him together for the sake of his great compassion. He surely does not want the blood of his creation spilled, but prefers love and peace among all mankind. We pray for the almighty creator that you hearken to our call Together, each according to his or her ability, we shall work towards the building of the house of prayer for all nations on the Temple Mount in peace and mutual understanding. Hmm. The Palace of Solomon is historically important important palace, and the rebuilding and rebuilding it would be a very wonderful thing. It is something that any Jew a Christian or Muslim should welcome with enthusiasm. Every every Muslim, this is this is another thing that's said by um, Mr. Oktar. This is not a Christian thing that's being said here. I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't verify that I was actually quoting. Let me do that again. The Palace of Solomon is is historically important palace, and rebuilding it would be a very wonderful thing. It is something that any Jew, a Christian, or Muslim should welcome with enthusiasm. Every Muslim, every believer will want to return to those days, to experience those days again, and albeit particularly to bring the beauty of those days back to life. Oktar also stated that the Temple of Solomon will be rebuilt and all believers will worship there in tranquility. It could be done you know, uh, uh, during his meeting with the Sanhedrin rabbis, Oktar expressed his belief that the temple would be rebuilt in one year. Listen to that. And it would be rebuilt in one year. It could be done in a year at most. It could be built to the same perfection and beauty. The Torah says it was built in 13 years. If I remember correctly, it could be rebuilt in a year in its perfect form. Since the meeting took place, um, uh, there is some detail discussed with Rabbi Abraham's son and Rabbi Hollander, two of the rabbis who met with Mr. Oktar. Regarding the building of the temple, Rabbi Hollander explained, the building of the temple is one of the stages in the messianic process. But another possibility that has been presented is that the Dome of the Rock, that the Dome of the Rock that sits so prominently on the Temple Mount to Mount be used as the place of prayer for all nations. This title is found in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Wow. So they want to keep the mosque up. There's a picture I have on on my uh, show thing that you see the mosque and you see the temple side by side. This was off uh, this particular article. 
This should be fairly simple, explained Rabbi Hollander. It is said that the structure of the dome in Haram e Sharif, the Temple Mount, was originally meant by Caliph Omar to be a house of prayer for Jews and the Al Qasa for Muslims. However, he also explained that religious Jews would not be able to enter the Dome of the Rock unless they had first been ritually cleansed according to Jewish halakhic regulations. While the prominence of the figures involved in this joint call to rebuild the Jewish temple is highly noteworthy. Other groups have also recently made news with unique vision with a with unique vision for the Temple Mount. Yohav Frankel, an Orthodox Jew who has been deeply involved in the interfaith dialogue with Muslims. This is happening here in this country. Chrislam, you understand Chrislam is part of this. The emerging church, the emergent church is all part of this. The ecumenical movement is all part of this. So, the interfaith dialogue with Muslims also envisions a shared temple mount. This project is called God's Holy Mountain and is an effort of the Interfaith Encounter Association, a group dedicated to promoting peace in the Middle East. What is unique about the the God's Holy Mountain project is that it envisions the day when Jewish the Jewish temple will exist side by side with the Dome of the Rock. This vision, quote, of religious shrines is peaceful in pre peaceful proximity can transform the Temple Mount from a place of contention to its original sacred role as a place of worship shared by Jews and Muslims and Christians, said Frankel in a Jerusalem Post interview. And that's where uh, this colorful painting that I have on the show front page. Uh, That was on Frankel's website. A paper on the God's Holy Mountain website written by an unnamed Muslim scholar asked the following question. Would a Jewish synagogue erected on the Temple Mount or the Noble Sanctuary make the blessed land less blessed? It will certainly add to its blessing because it will invite more voices that exult and glorify the one God whom we all pray, to whom we all pray. The vision of God's Holy Mountain may not be all that far off. The Obama administration has also suggested that Jerusalem could become an international city that would be shared by peoples from all three Abrahamic faiths. Even the Knesset, the gathering or assembly, um, uh, is an, a legislature of Israel. It's located in the Gavet Ram. Jerusalem is getting in on the discussion. Members of the Israeli Knesset gathered together last week with several Jewish scholars to discuss the role of the Jewish temple and Jewish life, referring to those Muslims who do not acknowledge the Jewish history of the Temple Mount. Dr. Mordecai Kaider stated, the struggle for Jerusalem is not territorial, it is theological. Do we give in to the Muslim claim that Judaism is no longer relevant? While religious Jews have yearned for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple literally for two millennia, some skeptical left-wing commentaries have mocked the notion that this will ever take place. One anti-religion blogger, blogger recently claimed that most Israelis have no interest in a third temple and would 
resent the way such a thing would symbolize the power of an already overbearing religious establishment. He then mocked the idea of something that only exists on the fringes in Israel or the real world. While any Christian expectation of a future temple is mere Christian fundamentalist fantasy, yet according to a recent poll conducted um, for Yannet News and the Gesher organization, over two-thirds of the Israeli public desire to see the Jewish temple rebuilt, including almost half of the non-religious. According to Yannet News, 64% of those questioned responded favorably to, favorably to the idea of rebuilding the temple, while 36% were not in favor of such a project. An analyst of the answers showed that not only the ultra-Orthodox and the religious look forward to the rebuilding of the temple, 100% and 97% respectively, but also the traditional public, 91%, and many seculars, 47%. Meanwhile, the work of the Temple Institute, a group that has openly dedicated itself for years to rebuilding the Jewish temple, goes on. They have already created many of the most significant priestly utensils and pieces of furniture necessary for the temple once it is ready. And I have a whole book on on uh, this this temple and it's being rebuilt. Um, <clears throat> in a recent video release entitled Dare to Dream, Dare to Build, several on-the-street interviews reveal the passion for the temple that are held by many average Israelis. One young man expressed his belief that the building of the Jewish temple will be, bring harmony, some tranquility in the world, some peace. Another woman joyfully states, the entire purpose of creation is that we build the holy temple. The suggestion of building the Jewish temple is deeply significant to Christians, particularly those who are students of Bible prophecy. According to the Bible, an imposter messiah known as the Antichrist will someday invade the land of Israel and set himself up in God's temple. The Apostle Paul lays this out quite clearly. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God, or is to be worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Second Thessalonians 2, 4. As a result, many Christians who understand the biblical teachings regarding the last days take note of this news with a deep measure of caution and trepidation. Another serious, serious cause for concern is that the fact is the fact that according to Islamic sacred tradition, the Mahdi, Islam's primary messiah figure, will one day invade the land of Israel and establish his seat of authority on the Temple Mount. According to the sacred tradition, an Islamic army will come from Iran and conquer Jerusalem Armies carrying black flags will come from Khorasan, Iran. No power will be able to stop them, and they will finally reach Ela, Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, where they will erect their flags. Commenting on this particular tradition, Egyptian authors Muhammad Ibn Izzat on Muhammad Arif comment, the Mahdi will be a victorious 
will be victorious and eradicate those pigs and dogs. Jerusalem will be located, <clears throat> will be the location of the rightly guided caliphate and the center of Islamic rule, which will be headed by Imam al-Mahdi. That will abolish the leaders of the Jews. As a Christian, as a Christian, uh, <clears throat> um, as a Christian, we have to take this with caution. While in the end, while all three Abrahamic religions do share many common beliefs and characteristics, many differences remain. While the prophets of the Bible and the dark nature of some of the Islamic traditions cause deep uneasiness from an Orthodox Jewish perspective, our apprehension must be necessary. Says Rabbi Abraham Hassan, there is a Jewish teaching referring to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that says, had the nations of the world known how much they benefit and are blessed by the holy temple, they would have surrounded it with legions of armies to protect it from harm. And <clears throat> I encourage you to get this, art, this article that he wrote. Now, I want to say here that the whole goal of the Temple Mount now, not in the past, for Islam is for the coming of the Mahdi. It was never really a site that they honored as they do Mecca and Medina. And so the fight for the Temple Mount has to do with the clash of eschatological, I can't even say the word, uh, an eschatological battle between Christianity, Islam, and the Jew. And as I have said, that there, the mosque itself actually strikes out against Christians. We're going to talk next time. I'm not going to be um, on the 26th because uh, I have something I have to do at work. But uh, the following week, we are going to talk about dividing Jerusalem. And what does that mean? And what is going to happen? And what does the Bible talk about who is uh, going to be cursed or blessed or whatever? Is going to, what's going to happen to those who divide her and are we dividing her uh, and what does that all mean and is it going to happen so we're going to talk about that and then after that I am going to talk about the details of the temple what is actually happening in Israel right now what is going on and how they're actually working out all these plans to build the temple I want to thank all of you for joining me today on As the Day Approaches. Again, I apologize for what happened in the beginning. I don't know what went on. But if you want to contact me, uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Brenda Johnson, and you can also go to my website, As the Day Approaches. You can write me there. You can uh, find me on False Teachings Identify, a false teaching site that I administer, and you can email me at uh, as the day approaches at mediacombb.net. I thank you again, and I look forward to talking to you next time on As the Day Approaches. 
This is a place where we come together and we meet in these last days to discuss important issues that are happening in our time so that we can grow and inspire one another to, to spur on to our, and grow in our faith. Thank you again. God bless. Thank you.